Welcome to the Agriculture Revolution podcast, where you will explore the world of agriculture through the lens of entrepreneurship and innovation. By interviewing experts in a diverse set of careers, this podcast provides an interdisciplinary and comprehensive insight into some of the most prominent and pressing developments in agriculture. Whether you're interested in food security, sustainability, AI technology, or just interested in learning more about agriculture, this is the show for you. And now your host, Julian Jensen Lim. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Agriculture Revolution podcast. My name is Julian Jensen Lim, and today on the show, we'll be discussing the role of the nonprofit sector in agriculture when promoting global development. We'll be joined by Charles Kogan, who, among many things, is a former Peace Corps volunteer, project evaluation consultant, and college admissions officer. It is a pleasure to have you on today, Charlie, and would you like to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your past work? Sure. Thanks, Julian. My my background in development was with the Peace Corps, and I was a rural extension agent, about a mid-level, with a project that was a partnership between Peace Corps, USAID, which is the United States Agency for International Development, and then the government of Togo in the Ministry of Rural Development. And we were trying to introduce... Uh, technology that was somewhere in the middle. The, the traditional farming was done by hand and it's really labor intensive. And it took the whole family plus the whole neighborhood plus the whole village. And because it was so labor intensive, people would tend to, everybody would come to my house. I'd fix food and drinks and then everybody would plow my fields by hand. Then we'd go to somebody else's house. And so it was one of these things that took all the time. And the government of Togo in the 70s decided to go to tractors. But the oil crisis of 1979-1980 made gas so expensive that the tractors were just sitting there because it was too expensive to run them. So USAID worked with the Togolese government and decided on a mid-level technology where you could use oxen with a traditional plow. They call them moldboard plows that people used to use in the American, you know, when you think of the Dust Bowl, in Oklahoma. I mean, they, you know, up until the 20th century, people used moldboard plows where the oxen pull the, the plow behind them, you know, with the yoke on their, their shoulders. Yeah. And so that, that was the middle technology because the farmers in the region had cattle, but they'd never used them for plowing in the past. Mm. But they already had the cattle, so it wasn't so expensive. The technology wasn't outrageously complicated, and the farmers were pretty smart. So the idea was that they would probably pick it up if they got some, some help getting started. Yeah, so you definitely touched on it, but what kind of agriculture model were you working on in the Peace Corps? This, this was a sustainable model where a farmer would have five to 10 hectares, and a hectare is a, several acres. And so 10 hectares might be 30 acres. So still very small by American standards. You know, you, if you talk about an American farmer with 30, 30 acres, it sounds tiny. But in Togo, because it was being done by hand, the scope was smaller and five hectares would take a lot of work to, to plow and weed and, and, and maintain. So the idea was to plow in rows and then plant on the top of the, the furrows and then also plant something in the middle between the furrows. So you're almost in lines. If you ever go by, you know, New Jerseyans and New Yorkers probably don't see a lot of cornfields, but if you drive up upstate a little bit, 
you might see a cornfield and you see the rows where you can actually see the line going off into the distance. And so with the oxen, you could get a long straight line like that. Whereas when it was done by hand, they might wiggle a little bit more because it was done by hand, but, but the same idea that you were doing grains and the grains were usually millet, corn, sorghum. And then you had leguminous vegetables like you know, black eyed peas or, or beans and things like that. And then you had the, the, the crop that I don't like that came in in the 70s and 80s, which was cotton. And cotton, you have to be very careful with. And we can talk about that later. But I think cotton is really leaches the soil. And if farmers don't rotate their fields and they try to do cotton on top of cotton, it doesn't take very long at all to deplete all the nutrients out of the soil. Mm. And that's caused some problems in Togo and in, in the American South, for that matter. Got it. So was your role in Togo uh, providing those cattle and oxen? What we did was we had funding from USCID that went to the, the project. And what, what would happen is I was a, an agency chief or my counterpart was an agency chief, which is sort of middle level. We had a, an entire region that we worked with extension agents and somebody would come from the project headquarters with, with a big bag of money and <laughs> more or less. And then we'd go out to the local Fulani and the Fulani were the ethnic group that tends to herd cattle. And we go and then, the farmer would choose two cows. We'd pay for them on the spot. And then once they were paid for, you know, they'd get some paperwork, basic paperwork and things. And then, and then they'd bring the cattle home. And then the, the idea was that within a couple of months of each purchase of cattle, we'd get a big training together. And there were people who were trained by the project as, you know, oxen trainers. And then as a, a Peace Corps volunteer, I'd had three months of agricultural training. A month in about a month in Houston, in Huntsville, Texas, at Sam Houston State University on a tropical farm, and then a couple of months of in, on hand. And when I was going, I was a little bit intimidated because I thought that meant I have to be able to teach farmers how to farm. And I, I don't have any naivety. I think the farmers in Togo are as smart as farmers anywhere. But it turned out that they were actually locally trained um, oxen trainers who would do the hands-on training, and I could help. I, th I think the training that I got made me familiar enough that at least I could be involved and be reproductive. And there were some things that we were doing like tying knots that would keep the oxen in place, but easy to unattach. And we did learn how to do, do those well. So I did a few trainings with the oxen trainers and they picked it up in, in a few hours and then they could take over that part too. And there were a couple of farmers who had tried to adopt this technology already because in the country next door, Ghana, and in the country to the other side, Benin, there had been projects already launched doing this. But the problem is they'd buy these plows and then they bring them back to Togo. And as soon as you wore them out or you broke something, it was really hard to get replacement pieces without driving, you know, without going all the way to another country to get them and come back. Oh, wow. And so we, when we came in, the United Nations built a, a manufacturing, a factory that built uniform plow parts. So they, they built the plows but they also built all the replacement pieces. So the thing that used to wear out the fastest was the thing that they called the beak. It was on the, the front end of the plow and that's what would break the, the, so the soil and they would wear out or break off. And so they, they would give you with your new plow three or four of those replacement parts. They did training with the farmers to show them how to unscrew it, you know, put the new one on, screw it on. 
but they also did some training with blacksmiths who used traditional forges. You know, you fan the flame and heat up the heat. And, and they, they did trainings or we did trainings with, with the local blacksmiths so that they would know how to assemble these things and fix them when they broke. And again, the, the blacksmiths were good. They were already used to working with those materials. And so once they got the appropriate parts to work with, it was pretty good for them. Hmm. So, so I think it was your... an integrated project. You know, the, the fact that the factory was producing the plows in the country, the cattle were already available, and then the farmers were, were already used to being around cattle at least. It, it made it a lot easier. It wasn't as if you were in, introducing something completely foreign. Hmm. So was the factory also part of the scope of your project? It was. It was something that was worked out. The government of Togo requested that the United Nations come and set up this factory. Yeah. And it was partly because of that factory that our project was was a, a spin-off to work with. And, and we worked with farmers across the three northern parts, regions of the country. And then I think the European Development Fund worked with farmers in the two southern regions. Mm. But we did a lot of the trainings together because we were promoting the same technology. Got it. So were there any cultural obstacles that prevented you or gave you a hard time when you were trying to implement the program or the new technologies? I would say one of the one of the cultural things that is difficult is that there's a big focus in that region of northern Togo on not showing off. So if you're wealthier, you shouldn't be showing it. You should be, you know, sharing it. And so culturally, when a farmer got a pair of oxen, it could create some jealousy. You know, people say, oh, now you're the oxen guy and we're just on there farming by hand. And so it, it could be an issue. So I think that's why it was important that we explained that this is going to be an ongoing project and that if it was successful within a certain number of years, a lot of farmers would have this technology. So if you support this guy and help him to succeed, that, that improves the chances of having the credit next year so the next farmer can get the funding. So I think the, the, the immediate challenge was that there was this very egalitarian system where, you know, I go to your farm and farm for you, you come to my farm and farm for me. And once you have social differentiation, in terms of you know access to credit and things like that, the danger was that that could be a big draw, drawdown. And there was one of my farmers whose cattle were stolen. And people all said, yeah, he was acting like he was so great because he had these cattle. Somebody had to take him down a notch. <laughs> He's not, not all that high. You know, it's, but, but locally, that's how people explained it. And maybe that was it. They, it turned out that we had insurance on the cattle. So, so he got a new pair. So, so that was at least one of the things they got was some, I mean, if he got it stolen again, we'd start to worry, wonder about it. But, but because it was pretty obvious that he was in distress, we, we did replace those. But That's um, funny. I know, another thing is that the, the role of different people, um, for example, in a family, everybody had a different role. Men would farm the land and then women would plant the seeds because of fertility and a lot of traditional societies, that's the way it works. So all of a sudden, if you're taking the women out and just using this mechanical cedar, some people would say, well, you know, if no woman's touched it, it's not going to grow. And so you'd say, okay, well, you can touch them before they go in the machine. Here, why don't you load them in the machine, rub them down good, and then... But, but I mean, it was important to address those issues because things that might not seem important to an American could be very important locally and could get a family into trouble if you didn't try to negotiate it with some sensitivity. Uh, so... Let's transition a little bit. So I know credit might not seem as very innovative, but at least in my opinion, 
its ability to kind of bring around economic change or spur some developments, I think definitely makes it a contender. Um, so what is the role of credit and funding in promoting sustainable farming practices in your opinion? I can speak very specifically to the project that I was on. Yeah. The cost of two oxen and the complete plow set and the yoke and all of the equipment was about $500 at the time. And the per capita income in the mid eighties when I was working there was $500. So that was basically a family's entire income. Yeah. So by giving the credit and letting people pay it back over five years, it allowed them to invest in a little bit better technology and know that, that you would be able to pay it back. And we are, we had a 95% reimbursement rate. So the reimbursement rate was strong. One of the unexpected things is because we worked with the extension agents to choose the farmers and the extension agents to some extent were being evaluated on how well their farmers reimbursed. They tended to choose the wealthier farmers who were more likely to be able to reimburse for the first round. The second round, you ended up going into the next round of farmers who still probably were a little better off. And then by the third and fourth round, you were starting to get off into you know, the regular farmer who's working hard but not making much of a profit. And I think so it might have had more impact when you got to those farmers. But because the reimbursements were very strong in the first two years, that I think gave the Togolese government and, and USAID the confidence to keep on giving the credit once you got past the sort of easy group of farmers who probably were already a little better off to begin with. Got it. So was your so job more over time? Hmm. So were you more in the credit or more in the teaching or kind of both? It was probably. So I was, I was involved in all, all aspects, but not hands-on. So for example, when it came time to give out the credit, we'd work with the extension agents and their Togolese would work and find the farmer for each region. So each of them was supposed to find a farmer the first year. Then we would bring those farmers together to the agency chief, who was my counterpart. And the agency chief would bet these files and say, you know, let's see the fields. What do you got? And, and then if they were approved, then the, the money would come from the project and go out for buying the cattle. The plows would be delivered. The farmers would sign. Not all were literate, but they could put a thumbprint. And the idea of credit's not foreign at this point. There had been credit you know, schemes in the past. And, and, then, um, and then they wouldn't get money, but they would get all the things that would be provided. And they'd actually choose the cattle or the oxen, which is the difference is oxen have been castrated. So they're steers instead of bulls. Yeah. You can imagine trying to put a yoke on a bull. It might be the yoke is on you, but you know, I mean, it would, <laughs> but, um, but so they were, they were castrated, they were steers, but the farmers would actually choose them. And then there was a good, there was good training support. You know, for example, we brought them and showed them how a lot of the farmers grew peanuts and the hay from peanuts is really good for feeding cattle. So we would, we would actually come out and do a training on how to build a gazebo where it's, it's shaded underneath so that, you know, if you're trying to stay out of the sun, you could sit underneath, but you could put the peanut hay up on top of it so that all the goats and chickens weren't messing with it. And then you could bring it down from the top of the gazebo. And so th those are the kinds of additional training sessions that you might do for new farmers. First, you get them using the cattle, you know, getting comfortable using the cattle. But then there were things on how do you do nutrition? How do you make sure you get the right vaccinations? And there were already veterinarians in the place, but but their credit packages included all the standard vaccinations to make sure the cows were, were healthy and not you know, dying in the middle of the season. Mm -hmm. then, and so it was pretty good. It was pretty comprehensive. And it was using local extension agents, local veterinarians. And, and basically the idea is that to be sustainable, 
you can't have a bunch of Americans come in and do it and then leave and say good luck. You have to have the work actually being done by the people in the country. And, and we could be there. I mean, in some ways, I thought my best virtue was that I was there just for that project. So if, if there was something needed, I could go and do the research, come back and share the knowledge, whereas almost everybody else had seven or eight projects going on. Mm-hmm. And so I think it was, it was useful to have one person who, whose focus was just on animal traction. That's what we called it, animal yeah. traction. I think you brought up a very interesting balance. So in kind of dilemma that kind of appeared. So you want to introduce the technologies, but it's expensive. So you introduce the credit, but that tends to favor the rich farmers. So how did you, how did your project um, address that balance? I think that's an issue, not only in international development, for example, in Togo, it's also an issue for American farmers. You know, the, the American farmers who are doing well, can get all the new machinery they need or they build cooperatives and pool their resources, you know, to get tractors that they share. I mean, there are different ways of doing it, but even in the United States, you know, teeny farmers tend to always tend to struggle to get you know, better equipment and things like that because they don't have as much credit worthiness. And so you have to almost introduce some sort of a boost. And one of the things that we did with the project is that the cost that, that the, the farmers were paying, was there was no profit involved. It was just paying back, you know, they, they, weren't, they were paying a really low interest rate, like two or 3% a year. And, and, and so the project would never have made money because they weren't getting much back on their, their, their um, loans, although you did get the money back and then you could loan it out again. And, and all of the expenses for the trainings and paying for staff who trained the oxen and things like that were being covered out of USAID money and through the work with Peace Corps volunteers and others. So in a way, it's not a sustainable model. If you were an American group, you'd have to find a way to break even, right? Unless it's a government program where they're expecting to lose money to help farmers and to help them grow up. It might be a little bit like some of the loan programs that have been set up to help low-income families to buy their first house. Mm-hmm. So that there's, you know, some of the traditional markers are, are taken out so that a family that might not ordinarily qualify could, I, there's one called HARP, H-A-R-P, where if you're a low-income family, you can actually get access to a nice house with a lower interest rate. It's sort of subsidized by a government thing. So I would say to some extent, our project was subsidizing things and not trying to write in all the costs that were involved in the project. So you were just paying back the amount you had borrowed. We did dip into lower-income farmers you know, pretty quickly because there weren't many farmers who were, who were cut above. So by the time you got into the third and fourth years of the project, we're getting farmers where it was a stretch for them, but the idea was by then the project had some success. The farmers saw the, the, the advantages because it was oxen plowing, you could plow more and you could make some money by plowing other people's fields. So for example, your neighbor, if they're having everybody in the village come over and farm by hand, still has to feed everybody, you know, prepare local beer for everybody, things like that with, um, if you had a pair of oxen, maybe they could just do half as much by hand and you could come in and plow, um, you know, part of their field for them. And then what you would get is a portion of their harvest at the end. Or, or you could say, I'll need 10,000 francs, which is only $20 at the end of the year. And then you take some of the money you've earned by plowing for a few other people and put it towards paying your loan. And so I think farmers found strategies to, to meet the cost, even when they weren't in the more wealthy areas or more wealthy things that was a form of wealth itself yeah. and so they could they could you know 
let out their oxen and plow their fields and bring in some of those revenues to pay their own loans. They also sometimes could plant crops like cotton that do work, work, work well in rows and they could get cash for that. And the problem is that in the past, it wasn't usually a cash economy, it was more of a barter economy. So I, I've got a bunch of corn, you've got a bunch of beans, so I'll trade you. A, and in the market even, sometimes people would go and sell their corn and then buy beans. So with cotton, nobody's gonna eat cotton and there wasn't any way to, to spin it locally. So it was just gonna be sold to a big truck that took off with it. And, um, and so some farmers would include a little bit of cotton in their fields to make sure that they got some cash revenue to pay their, their loans. And even when it went beyond the most wealthy farmers into the next group, the reimbursement rates were still over 90%. So I think there was something that they were getting out of it. Another thing is you've got a couple of steers. They used to be left traditionally with a herding group called the Fulani, who would take them off during the, the um, rainy season so that they wouldn't get in and start grazing in the middle of herbaceous crops. And then they'd bring them back or in, in sometimes in dry periods, they could take them to a place that had more water. But the problem is you don't have any control over that animal or its product. So invariably, it was built in that when you're working oxen in the fields, they get bigger. They build a lot more muscle mass. Yeah. And as they get bigger, you're getting, when you, when you have to, at the end of 10 years, sell them to get younger ones again, you, you make a profit on that too. You know, all of the better food that you're giving them and things like that comes back because the, the animal is actually much larger when you sell them. Yeah, so I, I think you mentioned beans and corn, and then earlier you, you kind of foreshadowed the cotton wasn't the, the best. So can you talk a little bit about what are some of the traditional staple crops that you know the farmers were using? Did your sure. program favor certain crops over, over another? And you know, The, cotton the and farmers wine traditionally did a lot of grains like sorghum. If you yeah. know molasses, molasses is made out of sorghum. They, they would do millet, and millet is kind of a big stock. They're little um, grains, but they're on a big stock, kind of like corn. They did corn, and they had different varieties of corn, and the National Rural Development Agency would bring in different varieties and try to try them out to see which ones worked best when the rainfall was inconsistent. And so farmers had a pretty good idea of which ones were going to be the, the hardiest crops that would hang in there if you had you know, two weeks of drought. And, and then you had the, the beans, the, the leguminous vegetables, you know, alfalfa. You had um, soybeans. People grew a lot of soybeans. Peanuts. People grow a lot of peanuts. And the traditional farming system had the, the um, grains up on top of the, the, the furrows. Or the, and then in the middle, you'd have things like you know, peanuts. And, and um, what would happen is you'd do one weeding down the middle. And then once that was done, you'd plant your legume, the leguminous vegetables, the beans and the soybeans and the peanuts and things like that. And they would keep the weeds out too. So it was sort of a, an integrated farming system. And some of the techniques that farmers were using already were pretty effective. And we also worked a lot on crop rotation so that, for example, if you did grains this year, maybe you do leguminous vegetables next year, they tend to fix a lot of nitrogen in the soil especially if you plow some of them back in and then maybe leave a field fallow free or put nothing but hay on it. And then maybe on a five-year rotation, you could get in there and do cotton. But if you do cotton on top of cotton, it just destroys the soil structure. And the area that I was working in was a little bit mountainous. 
so you had erosion problems. Mm -hmm. So there were some issues about how deep do you go? And there were different things you could use. One was a mold board that went deeper, but you could adjust it to go less deeply. There was also something called a triangle, that's triangle side, that had little prongs on the bottom, and that didn't go as deep. And I think a lot of farmers liked that one because you could break the soil without going too deep. And then if you did it that way, it didn't cause as much erosion. So that when, when water came in, it didn't go down the furrow all the way down. It would just sit and maybe have a little bit more time to soak in. So some people would use the triangle at least every other year. And then depending, the, the farmers were pretty smart. Traditionally, farmers used a lot of, if you've ever seen Machu Picchu or somewhere like that, where farmers, I'm trying to remember the word for it, but they're, they're doing layers, bands, where it's built up. And then you go down. And so they're not trying to go up and down the mountain. They're going around the mountain. But there's a word for it. Uh, terraces. They're, they're farming by terraces. Yeah. And so or, ordinarily, our farming wouldn't be done in the mountains because there's too many, rock, too many rocks and things. But, but a lot of the farmers were pretty smart about using the mountainsides with terraces to limit the amount of erosion. So we weren't going to a, a country full of bad farmers. It was just about how taking, taking good farmers and helping them to have better technology so they could get more land under cultivation and at the same time have the ability to, to weed a little bit more easily. One of, the unintended ex uh, one of the intended consequences is that children used to spend a heck of a lot of time in the fields because you needed the entire family, the entire village by hand to be doing all the plowing and do all the weeding and, and stuff like that. With the, the oxen, usually a much smaller number of people could do the work and it, it freed up the kids to go to school. And especially, the, eventually we end, end up introducing these technologies for the seeding as well, where, where you wouldn't have to have the girls running around in the fields putting the seeds in. You could just go through with the machine and it would, you know, they're kind of like a wheel and it pops down a, uh, a seed on a regular, regular interval, which was actually a little bit more systematic too. So there was, some, there was some good stuff being done. Those could be pulled by the oxen as well if you wanted to. You could, you could chain, chain it up and then it would come down through. You load it up with seed and they would drop a seed or two every you know, six inches or something, depending on what you wanted it to be. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty profound. I mean, just a simple, yeah, just the introduction of like, let's say an oxen can, you know, give farmers extra income. It can, you know, allow kids to go to school. It can, it, it seems like that, you know, it's seemingly small change has such a profound impact on the greater community. I think so. If I were going to look at the downside, some of the farming that when you had everybody out on the thing, it was huge on a social side, everybody depended on each other, right? Yeah. So everybody comes to my farm. It was a little bit like the old barn raisings in the olden days when people were trying to start a new farm, everybody would come and help them build their barn. So now all of a sudden I got oxen with a plow. I don't need you anymore. And so I worried that there was a little bit of a weakening of some of the social bonds. Mm. But I think you know, we're in the, we, we, were, we were in the 20th century back then, now it's the 21st century. I think people did need, you know, the, the benefits to some extent were important enough and other people in the countries nearby were using the technology. So if you're just gonna say, we wanna protect this wonderful social cohesion at the expense of, of farmers making a better living to support their families better, that seemed maybe a tough one. It was a tough trade-off, but it wasn't as if there was no impact on the social structure. Oh, wow. That, that's pretty interesting, too. What are some characteristics that an international development officer should have to be successful? I've just started a graduate program in public affairs, and we had to do something called Myers-Briggs, 
and uh, MBTI or something, and it finds out what personality you have, you know, extrovert, introvert, blah, blah, blah. And, and it looked like there were successful people with all of these. I would say, bottom line, you, you, if your ego is too big, one of the people I, I knew who, who struggled was a guy who had a, exactly the right master's degree. He had a master's degree in international development, but he always came in thinking he was the expert. And he didn't, he kind of talked over people and assumed that because he knew what he was talking about, people just needed to hear him. They didn't. And fortunately, maybe I came in with enough knowledge not to be an idiot, but not enough to be overly over, overconfident. And so I think I came in wanting to talk with people about what was the best approach. And I would say that for international development, especially when you're at a grassroots level, you probably should leave the ego at home. Because a lot of things that are going to work perfectly in the United States might not work locally. We had the example in, in our training of somebody who was supposed to be working on gardening. And so he had this big thing. He said, you have to use compost. And people say, if you put compost, the insects are going to come and destroy everything. And he said, they never did it for me. And so he used compost and the insects came in and destroyed everything. And so then the next year he said, okay, how do you guys do it? And then, you know, and then eventually he knew enough about local agriculture. So I would say, if you come in thinking you know everything you need to know at the very moment you start, you're probably wrong. And it's probably better to come in open-minded enough to, to learn from the people you're working with. And if you have something to add, bring it in. But, but don't bring it in until you've seen what they know first. Because you'd be surprised, you know, a farmer doesn't have to be literate to be knowledgeable. You know, there, were, there were a lot of farmers who had never been to school, but they could get out in the field and produce results I couldn't. So I think humility a little bit of flexibility, a willingness to have some cultural sensitivity. So for example, in, in Togo, and I'm sure in India, in many parts of the world, the right hand is for eating and the left hand is for dirty things. So if you go into the bathroom, maybe there's your left hand. Yeah. If your nose has got a booger, that's your left hand. <laughs> but, but if you're going to go eat, so you have to, you have to, I mean, Peace Corps does a good job of at least giving you the basic training. And I think that's really helpful. The, um, so, so cultural sensitivity and not expecting to know everything when you start, but being willing to learn. And, and I think that was, that was a lot of fun, Le learning a whole different way of approaching things. And, um, awesome. Yeah, so I think that, and, and if you can get some knowledge, it's a great thing too, because you don't want to come in completely clueless and just start from scratch. If you ever want to give good reading to somebody, there's a guy named Greg Mortensen, who co-wrote a book called Three Cups of Tea. And he was hiking or mountain climbing on K2 and got separated from the rest of his group and got dehydrated and wandered into a village where they took good care of him, nursed him back to health. And he wanted to do something good for them and build them a school. So he went back to the United States. He didn't know how to raise funds, but finally he got the funds together for a school. And then he came and he tried to take over and, and do it. And the chief of the village said, when you were with us, you'll notice that we'd have tea with you. We'd have a cup of tea. That's to get to know you. A second cup of tea would be to make you a friend. And then when you have a third cup of tea, then you're family and we'll do anything for you. So don't rush it. And, and so I think, you know, that, that idea that taking the time to, to build the connections makes a huge difference. And, and Greg Mortensen is not a perfect story because he wrote another one called Stones, Bullets to Stones or something about building schools. He's a really great guy, but he wasn't a great administrator. So I think 60 Minutes did an expose on, on um, his project, which was called the Central Asian Society or something, and found out that 
the accounting wasn't very good. I don't think he was doing it, but I think it was just difficult. He was going to a region, you know, that had a lot of things going on. You know, there were there were, but but I would say his approach, which was coming in and saying, you know, he, you know, I I have to learn first before I can work here. What was a good one? And it took him a little while to learn that, but I think it's an important thing to learn. So learn that from him, but not accounting. <laughs> Although he seems like a great guy. Well, thank you for coming on the show today. Um, would you like to say any last words to our audience? You know, people who are interested in maybe pursuing a project overseas or, you know, funding their own project here. Well, one of the things I'd say is that 50 years ago, a lot of the wealthiest members of any community were farmers. And now there are some wealthy farmers, but there's so many fewer. And the reason there's so many fewer is that it's such a big investment to do massive scale farming where you're planting hundreds of acres of corn and selling it for ethanol or something. The last 15 years in Northfield, we've started seeing a lot more CSAs. I don't know if you know what a CSA is, but it's usually farmed on a much smaller parcel, maybe five acres, intensively, organically, and um, people buy shares. And then every week they come and pick up their share. What but is a CSA? Almost all, yeah, those have almost all been started by college graduates who just decided to live off the land. And it doesn't mean their kids don't go to the school, same school as everybody else, but it's pretty cool to see. And my guess is a lot of those farmers will be really strong position to then go and work on farming projects in the developing world where the, the tendency is to say, they did big, we want to do big too. But of course that hasn't turned out to be so good for us. You know, the soils and the water quality in Iowa, which is a big farming state are, are compromised now. And it takes a lot of fertilizer to get the same result you would have gotten many years ago from an integrated thing where you had livestock and and you know crop farming and things like that. So the the movement back to having livestock, you know, and and using the manure, um, smaller plots that are that are done in a more sustainable way, you can make a living doing it, but it has to be done pretty pretty well, and that might be a model that's worth exporting. There's a really good local agronomist here who's originally from Guatemala. And he started something called the, the um, Peace Coffee, getting fair trade and uh, organic um, good prices for the coffee farmers from Guatemala. And now he's got a, another model. It's a really cool one. He's, he's, he's always giving talks, and so he may not be free. But he's, you know, compared to me, he's really high powered because he has a system that involves chickens, trees with certain nuts, and then using the, the um, produce, you know, the, the, the poop from the chickens to fertilize the tree. It's, a, it's an integrated system, but that kind of an integrated model is really powerful and apparently can turn a good profit. And um, his name is Reginaldo. I'll send you the, the website for what he does. And he wrote a book about his life called Green Man, but he's a pretty cool guy. So there, there are people doing this now in the United States who also do it overseas and, and who make enough profit here to invest in helping people overseas to do it too. And given what our agriculture has done to our country, you know, those might be the good people to, to, to be teaching agriculture or bringing agricultural methodologies to the developing world to avoid having to go all the way to hell and back. <laughs>